This is The Space Shot, episode 147 for October 8th, 2017. My conversation with Kachun Yu. So, my name is Kachun Yu, and I am the curator of space science at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. That was Kachun, and you'll hear the audio from the conversation I had with him this last week. Hey everyone, welcome to The Space Shot, your daily space history, pop culture, and news fix. I'm John Molnix. Last weekend, I traveled back home to Colorado to see family, and I decided I wanted to fit in a few interviews during the time I had there. I hope I can do more interviews at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in the future, and I really enjoyed the conversation that I was able to have with Kachun on that Monday afternoon. I've got a few quick launch updates before we get started. Some weather delays pushed back the launch of the United Launch Alliance Atlas V that was scheduled to lift off last week. It was a very, very, very early morning launch where I'm at, so I'll probably be skipping that launch when it actually does go up. There's also a launch scheduled for tomorrow morning at Vandenberg Air Force Base. SpaceX is launching the next set of satellites for the Iridium Next constellation. Liftoff is scheduled for 5.37 a.m. Pacific Time or 8.37 Eastern. I'll have a link to the live stream on Facebook and online, so be sure to check it out. The last launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base for Iridium had incredible footage of the entire first stage of the Falcon 9 coming back down to Earth and landing on the autonomous spaceport drone ship. Just read the instructions. It should be a fun live stream to watch. Now, let's dive into the wide-ranging conversation I had with Kachun Yu, curator of space science at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Dr. Yu, welcome the show. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, glad to be on. Um, so, talk to me about your time at the museum. Like, what brought you to Denver, of all places? Well, um, actually, I, um, I I lived in Boulder um, for a while because I moved to Colorado for graduate school. So, I have a okay. PhD in astrophysics from the University of Colorado in Boulder. Okay. And uh, soon after, um, I got my PhD um, through... Um, luck, um, random chance, um, I mean, it was just very fortuitous that I ran into um, a, a manager of um, one of the projects um, that was happening here at the museum, which was to renovate the planetarium. So nowadays, most planetariums are these digital um, projection facilities where you anything that can be programmed into a computer, you can show yeah. um, immersively in this hemispherical dome. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like virtual reality, but made large. Um, into a group experience. Definitely. But traditional planetariums um, are very analog um, devices. And so right when I was, I was hired, it was when this um, change started happening um, with technology where um, planetariums could um, convert from this very old school analog way of doing things to this new d- digital medium. So I was um, hired to um, help um, with scientific programming and I mean, I learned a lot about Uh, visualizations and graphics programming but the idea was to basically create a simulation of the known universe that you could fly through Um, so um, and and, um, what we ended up using it for was um, um, we we used it for live presentations but also um, to create our first planetarium show or first um, pre-rendered movie show okay. that was played back to the public repeatedly. I was going to say, I've been to a bunch day. of those over the years. They're mm-hmm. fantastic. So yeah, yeah. You, your team is behind all of those visuals that we see then. 
for back then, yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, um, since then, um, I, I haven't actually worked on um, that many planetarium shows. Okay. And the museum, um, you know, um, we, we produced a, a number of different shows. But um, since then, we haven't done that many. But, um, but I also got involved with a research project um, where we tried to um, look at how you can use um, these new uh, FANGO uh, digital planetariums to more effectively teach astronomy. Would that be the ALIVE mm -hmm. project? Yeah, okay. the Astronomy Learning and Immersive Virtual Environments are ALIVE. Okay. If you um, put all the, um, the first letters together. So we were funded by the National Science Foundation, and I worked with a collaborator at a local university, Metropolitan State University of Denver, okay. where we were bringing in um, students um, from the introductory astronomy classes and we were trying to figure out you know, if um, having them um, in the dome um, was um, as effective as, um, let's say, um, if you presented the same sort of visualizations um, on a flat screen okay. in a classroom. Um, because since these are just um, computer-generated imagery, you could just go um, in, into a classroom and run it off your laptop. Yeah. And uh, what are general results um, that we found and published over a series of papers um, in recent years um, is that um, the dome does appear to be um, pretty effective, okay. um, especially compared to the classroom, Definitely. and for a number of different reasons. And um, one of them actually has to do with the immersion, the fact that you can, you know, you can turn your head around 180 degrees and you'll still see imagery. And so it's, um, it's a very um, immersive experience, meaning when you're plopped down in that seat and you look around and you have you know, visuals that are um, as realistic as we can make them for planetary surfaces, for um, the star field and so forth, uh, people um, can really get engaged. Yeah, and what's funny is like the first time I saw the digital planetarium, I thought of the scene in Star Trek where Picard and Data are in stellar cartography. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's literally what that experience is. It's so mm -hmm, cool because mm -hmm. it's just, you know, unlike the old one where it was analog, it's literally you're you're there on whatever surface you want to be on, whatever star field you want to fly through. It's really cool. So if nobody's been able to see one of those before, you need to check it out because the digital planetarium shows are just phenomenal. Um, so what, what started you down that research path then? Well, it, um, it was just the fact that um, this is a relatively new technology, and um, and I knew that uh, because it was so new, uh, people really hadn't um, investigated it. Okay. So uh, my collaborator and I were able to put together um, a research proposal, and um, and through um, I mean for these um, types of um, opportunities um, through the National Science Foundation, um, these are reviewed by um, anonymous reviewers, and so okay. we met. We, um, we were able to make the cut and um, we're able to get funded. Um, cool. But yeah, it, it's been um, an exciting time just to be able to, um, to test um, these types of environments because we knew you know, nobody had really done much um, yeah. with them. And what's also really interesting is that you know, when we were working on this um, more than a decade ago, when we first started working on this, um, I made sure I understood sort of the literature of what people had done. Mm -hmm. And um, so back then, virtual reality was around. I mean, it, um, there were people working on it since the 90s, but it hadn't sort of exploded like, yeah. like it has today. And what, um, one of the interesting results that we found um, is that um, it, it's part of the discussion in one of our papers, but um, I speculate that um, the reason why it's so effective is that... Um, when it, the imagery is actually stimulating the viewer's uh, peripheral vision. So when you 
fly through a star field okay. or fly past a bunch of planets and moons, um, instead of just seeing things immediately in front of you, yeah. um, the objects slip um, towards past you around um, your side, you know, either to your left or right or above you. Okay. And, um, and I speculate that um, that might um, actually increase people's attention because we've evolved to pay attention to things that might be coming at us from our peripheral, from our um, far sides. And, yeah, and, and so, um, so, so I think it's really interesting, I mean, especially because if you look at um, the virtual reality headsets yeah. um, that are being sold today, like from Oculus or um, HTC Vive, um, they, um, they actually um, still have um, somewhat limited fields of view. They're not as wide as planetariums. So until they get as wide as um, digital domes, you know, they might not uh, offer quite the same um, experience, way, experience yeah. and get people to be as attentive. But um, but that's um, just part of the speculation. And it's, that's you know, cool, though. That's yeah, really yeah, cool. Yeah, so, so it shows how you know, if you do science in one field, you can often find ways in which it connects to completely different Everything. topics. Yeah. Everything. That's awesome. So like AR, like what do you think, like augmented reality? Mm-hmm. Where do you think that's going to be with like planetary or with you know science visualizations in general? Yeah, I mean that will be really powerful, um, but uh, because it's so new, yeah. um, you know it, it's really uncertain, um, and we can't really predict where it's going to go. And AR actually, um, augmented reality suffers an even worse problem if you just look at the field of view. So, um, for instance, um, people um, you probably uh, you might have seen demos. Of Microsoft's Hololens, yeah. which is um, you know it's really expensive right now, but a lot of developers are playing with it and creating really cool applications. But um, the field of view of um, Hololens is even um, narrower; it's um, it's less than forty degrees. It's like around thirty four oh, wow. or thirty five degrees, and so you know when you're looking at it, you um, you only see AR, the augmented reality, in right. like a very truncated part of your uh, vision. Interesting. So yeah, and again, I mean, I'm, I'm sure things will change as the technology um, advances yeah. and matures. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, at least compared to domes, um, there's a little ways um, to go. But to go. Uh, there's definitely a lot of power in AR because now you can transplant your visualization into any sort of room that you occupy, yeah. whether it's your living room or a classroom or outdoors. I mean, people, people who play Pokemon Go you know, know all about that. Very cool, very cool. I, I didn't even think of the AR until we were talking about the dome, so that's, yeah. that's an interesting thing. Yeah, so, so what's really interesting is that there's just all these um, connections between what people are doing, visualizing in domes, and then how it um, it's, you know, they're not super strong connections, but you can see tendrils um, feeding to virtual reality and augmented reality. It'll be interesting to see where we go from there. So the other thing that you're involved with is the Worldviews Network. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a um, the Worldviews Network is um, a, a project um, that was funded by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Okay. So I had a bunch of collaborators, um, and we wrote a proposal, and, and we got um, funded for three years. And the idea behind that is using um, digital domes across the country, not just ours, to um, help connect um communities uh, uh, with um, sustainability and, um, and, and um, environmental change um, issues. Okay. Um, and so here um, we're taking the visualization um, abil- capability of domes and instead of just talking about astronomy um, and looking out into the rest of the universe, we actually turn our gaze back towards the earth and, um, and show 
um, using visualizations how um, the world is changing um, around um, our audiences and how the, um, they can prepare for some of this global change, you know, whether it's climatic or um, availability of water resources, okay. um, et cetera. But, uh, but I think what's really cool, you know, because, you know, this is primarily like in this space-related um, podcast. You're good. <laughs> um, is that, um, you know, people talk about the Earth, but uh, people often forget that the Earth is a planet. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, uh, and so um, what's the reason why we chose the planetarium as opposed to, you know, just doing it in a classroom. I mean, one is it's um, really great to be able to show um, everything immersively yeah. and to um, connect um, audiences to these really compelling visualizations. But the other aspect of this, and, and this is why planetariums are crucial, is that in planetariums you can show um, what um, makes the Earth habitable and what is it that makes it different from, um, let's say, um, other similar planets in our solar system like Mars and Venus, um, which um, based on um, our current thinking, early on in the solar system, all three worlds, Venus, Earth, and Mars, um, probably um, were very similar. Okay. And but over the um, history of the solar system, they evolved down very different paths. Yeah. Um, so that uh, Mars is uh, you know, basically a very dry, cold desert world. Venus is a very hot <laughs> um, yeah. desert world. You know, it's also very dry, but it has an extremely dense atmosphere. Mars has a very thin atmosphere. Um, Earth is right in the middle, and Earth is um, the one that um, where liquid water can exist on, on its surface, and where um, we know life exists. And so, um, you know, helping you know, people to connect um, the conditions um, that are possible for life on the Earth to um, conditions elsewhere and to understand um, what are these, um, you know, cosmic variables that uh, make the Earth or any other um, planet or moon habitable. That was um, sort of one component of our story. Okay. And, um, yeah, that, that's kind of exciting because, you know, we've all... Um, especially people who are really into astronomy have heard the phrase, you know, we're made of stardust. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, the heavy elements in our bodies um, that make life possible um, actually originated in the interiors of stars um, or uh, via supernova explosions when stars exploded. But, yeah, in addition to the makeup of ourselves, um, even our environment, um, you know, there are connections um, to the cosmos itself and, and how um, and, and, um, the, the cosmic conditions that make um, the Earth habitable. We will return to the interview with Kachun in just a moment. Before I left the museum, I ended up having a little bit more time than I had anticipated, so I made my way back into the Space Odyssey exhibit before heading to the airport. I was wandering around that exhibit when I stopped at the Science on a Sphere to check out some visualizations that were being shown. So what is this exactly? This is Science on a Sphere? This is called Science on a Sphere, developed by NOAA in Boulder. Okay. And uh, what this is, is this this is looking back 600 million years ago. Okay. What the Earth looked like. If we, if we go all the way back to 600 million years ago. Whoa. This was the, a supercontinent. 
just like Pangea that people are familiar with today. Right? This, this was 600 million years ago. And for everybody listening, unfortunately, this is kind of radio. So <laughs> what we're looking at now is basically a sphere that's just floating here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And there's multiple projectors that are showing us like representations of what the continents looked like hundreds of millions of years ago. Is we, that right? We've got almost 800 different displays that we can put up. Okay. This particular one, paleogeography, you're standing on 25 miles of rock okay. that are floating on an 8,000-mile ball of melted metal. Okay. It's a little bit simplified, but okay. that's basically the principle. And what we're looking at, what the, the two of us were looking at when you walked up, is what happened at the South Pole over the last 600 million years. Okay. And sometimes it's covered with ice, and sometimes it's not covered with ice. Very cool. And we're working back. We both had had uh, classes in geologic history, and okay. she's currently taking a course in climate, and I'm listening. Very cool. And what was your names? Oriel. And my name is Rich. Nice to meet both of you. Now let's get back to the conversation with Kachun. We left off when we were talking about how the elements in our bodies originated in stars. So on this Sunday morning, or whenever you're listening to the podcast, take a moment to think about how we're all made up of stardust. That's pretty cool stuff. So like you're talking about variables. So Mm -hmm. what are some of like the variables that go into making the visualizations? Like how is it even done? Well, um, a lot of it um, is very similar to... um, shares characteristics with um, game development, video okay. games, and um, and in fact, um, you know, before, um, back in the 1990s in the um, kind of the previous generation of virtual reality, um, the tools and the hardware that you could use to create um, virtual reality, the simulated environments, mm-hmm. were very expensive and they're um, very difficult to do. Um, and, and, but um, what happened um, after um, the turn of the century was that um, um, these graphics um, cards uh, from um, like NVIDIA started yeah. appearing, and they were really important for, uh, video, ga- for the video game industry because it allowed you to, um, to render you know, um, complicated objects um, in real time, meaning you know, up to 60 um, frames per second uh, on a laptop or on a desktop computer. And these, um, these um, graphics cards, um, because they were meant for the consumer market, were also cheap. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's there lot, lots of sales of them they, uh, that gave more money to these companies that could develop even faster graphics cards. And so basically um, there was um, this huge change in um, how, you know, quickly and easily um, you could um, do um, these types of graphics. Um, and we, um, when we um, we renovated the Gates Planetarium, which is the planetarium at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, yep. we're actually right at the cusp of that revolution. So when we opened the planetarium, we were running on these um, silicon graphics supercomputers, okay. which were these, these giant machines um, that took up you know six, seven, eight racks. Oh and gosh. then um, since then, um, we've seen that evolution where we've now switched to um, just. I mean, they're very high-end, but they're more or less just um, PCs running graphics cards. And so we can put, you know, eight of them into a single rack. And, yeah. um, but, um, you know, as far as how you create these visualizations, it um, turns out that you know, if you're, all you're interested in is rendering, let's say, planets and stars, is actually really simple because a planet is just a ball 
So that's, you know, graphically, you know, a 3D model for a ball is pretty simple. Yeah. And you overlay onto it a texture um, of what the surface looks like. And um, based on, you know, um, ground-based, um, space-based, and spacecraft imaging of these planets and moons, we have a pretty good idea of, you know, what they look like. And so we can build realistic models. And then if they have atmospheres, um, that adds a little bit of complication um, to it. Um, so for the most part, um, rendering planets is relatively easy. Rendering stars, I mean, they're just pinpoints unless yeah. you fly right up um, close to them. So for our real-time software where we're just flying around you know, the solar system or out um, into our galaxy, um, those visuals are relatively simple to um, create and um, render out. Okay. But um, things get more complicated if you decide to, let's say, land on the surface of a planet and see you know, like the canyons of Mars, uh, or see something in much more detail. Or if you're flying up to um, a nebula, which is, you know, a very amorphous, diffuse um, type of object. And so, um, yeah, that that, um, isn't easy to do in real time. Although, you can spend a lot of time um, creating the model and tweaking it and, and, you know, like spending minutes or hours per frame to to render out, you can um, easily, you know, create a movie. of that very cool so what do you think like the future holds for visualizations for the planetarium like where do you think the next i mean the last 10 years have been an incredible transformation where Mm -hmm. do you think the next 10 years will take us i mean like you talked about education do you see that you know diffusing even further when graphics cards become less and less expensive do you see like the at-home planetarium or do you you know what what the future is yeah, pe- people um, speculate about whether um, planetariums um, could actually become extinct because, I hope not. <laughs> um, because uh, you know, as things get cheaper and cheaper, you can imagine that um, you could have the same sort of experience at home with a virtual reality headset, um, as opposed to, you know, um, having to drive somewhere and um, and, and um, paying money um, to go to a planetarium. You could. Um, I mean, I'm sure you'll still be paying for it somehow, but I mean, there'll be free versions, but, you know, perhaps with advertisements, but you could have a similar type of experience where it gets streamed into your um, headset at home. Um, So I think um, planetariums um, will have to figure out um, ways to adapt. And um, I think the way um, that, I mean, the only way um, to make it viable is, um, you know, how do you get butts into um, seats is... um, yeah, the the difference between um, an experience that you um, have at home yeah. or you're alone and you're um, you know you're, you're isolated at home uh, versus um, or perhaps you know there, there might be a way um, we can have a communal experience with yeah. a handful of um, your family and friends at home versus um, something um, that is um, social by nature. So coming to um, whether it's a planetarium or a theater or an arena for a sporting event, you know, um, I think we all recognize that there are some things that, I mean, obviously you can watch on TV, but that is a very different experience than um, going out and joining with hundreds or thousands of other people and having this collective experience. And so, I mean, there are a lot of things that, you know, you don't mind watching at home. I mean, you know, there are plenty of movies that you don't mind watching on Netflix, but then there are... Yeah, the special, you know, big event um, films or um, or sports events that you know for people who really want to do it. I mean, they w- would rather pay money to um, go and have this group experience. And so for planetariums, you know, they have to figure out 
exactly what that is. And I think um, you know, planetariums already sort of know um, the answer to that. Yeah. And um, it turns out that um, planetariums tend to do um, what they tend to do really well is the live um, lecture, the live presentation. Yes, I love those. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, um, and, and and I've actually uh, done um, some visitor um, surveys where. Um, yeah, I, we talked about the Worldviews Network, um, but uh, some of the other programs that we've done um, here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, uh, one of them is called Digital Earth, where we again use the planetarium. Instead of looking out um, into space, we turn our gaze back towards the Earth and we use the visualization capacity of our planetarium software to fly over the Earth and learn about the Earth. And very early on when I was doing that, I wondered, you know, what is it that makes us different? I mean, why were people spend the time and the money to come here when they can be at home and you know zoom around on Google Earth and have sort of the same experience and from our surveys um, it turns out that um, you know people um, when they're uh, fiddling around with um, Google Earth um, versus you know other software at home um, they don't have the expertise to know you know where they're going or what yeah. they're seeing other than when they zoom down to their house and so, you know, we offer um, this level of expertise um, that is missing. And even if you have like a canned lecture, you know, let's say um, you um, watch a documentary or, or, or um, you watch something that's um, pre-recorded, mm -hmm. um, there, there is um, still this um, element um, where the live presenter um, has a way of, um, of engaging and capturing the audience's attention um, that is really different. Yeah. From um, from a canned presentation, and I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 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 I think um, yeah. As long as people don't totally um, slip up, I, I think there is a future for um, you know planetariums, um, even in the world of virtual reality and yeah. the world of augmented reality. Just like you know, um, we probably won't ever see you know live theater events go away or um, attending um, you know football games yeah. or basketball games. Yeah. I think that's that. I think that's definitely where we're headed. I, I, I completely agree. So, what? Just to kind of conclude up here, what what's something you wish more people knew about the job you do? Like whether it's whether it's space science, whether it's the visualization, the education part. Like what's one or one or two things that more people should know about the work that scientists do? I think um, there's a. Often an easy stereotype or misconception that scientists, um, you know, especially if you just pay attention to what you see on TV or yeah. in the movies, um, you know, scientists are people in lab coats and they walk around in a laboratory and they may, um, um, you know, do some work on a computer. Uh, but you know, you have if you say the word scientist, suddenly this picture pops into your head of what a scientist looks like. And I, I think um, if you um, actually go out and, and talk to and interview and, and see um, different scientists, you'll find that, you know, they come um, in um, a huge variety of, I mean, not, not only the topics that they work in, but, um, you know, there are um, plenty of women scientists, yeah. scientists of um, different ethnicities, genders, and, and uh, scientists of different backgrounds. And then what's really important is that, you know, scientists, um, or very rarely, I mean, unless they work in a lab setting um, where they're required to do this, very rarely wear um, white lab coats. <laughs> and um, and um, scientists, um, you know, f f 
for the most part look like you know everyone else yeah. but um, you know they have um, a real interest in how um, some aspect of the universe um, works okay. whether it's astronomers um, who are focused on you know the universe at large or um, the solar system or pl the planets out there all the way to biologists who study you know the smallest microorganisms to anthropologists and psychologists who study um, human culture and human behavior and <clears throat> just as there's a huge variety in the the, <clears throat> the type of subjects that scientists um, work in mm -hmm. um, there's also a huge variety in um, what they have to do in order to do their research so for astronomers um, we um, and I've, I'm sort of you know I've dipped my toes into educational research with the dome but I've um, also continued to do some astronomical research as well right. so you know on the astronomy side um, you know most astronomers um, spend probably 95% of their time um, in front of computers because all the data that um, come in astronomy um, or in digital form and so whether um, you're observing from telescopes on the ground or you're um, pulling in data from the Hubble Space Telescope or um, getting data sent back from a space mission um, those um, are all um, in you know ones and zeros originally yeah. and um, and the amount of time that you might spend gathering the, the data is very small but um, it takes a long time to clean the data um, to um, and to analyze it and, and to figure out um, what your results are and so um, astronomers um, I mean, there there are some astronomers who um, do laboratory work, mm -hmm. um, but you know, for the most part, it's um, it's a very um, different um, idea. At least ninety five percent of the time, you know, as far as what they do, than what people might imagine. Interesting. Okay. That's that's a very good perspective. So, I I really appreciate you sitting down, and taking the time to talk to me today. Is there anywhere people can follow you online, or do you you have Twitter or anything? No, unfortunately, okay. I um I I'm not as um good with social media. Um, no just, uh, but uh, but you can uh, for people who um, want to um, see some some of my projects, um, you can um, go to the uh, Denver Museum of Nature and Science um, webpage, which is okay. www.dmns.org. Okay. And uh, if you poke around, um, you'll um, be able to find um, pages about the scientists. Sure. Um, and for people who are interested in the papers that I've published, um, there are um, a couple of websites that scientists use um, okay. that they use to um, let. I mean, there's, it's sort of like social media for scientists, but it's okay. not as social. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's one called academia.edu, okay. and then there's another one called, called ResearchGate. Um, so if you um, Google me um, on those sites, definitely you'll be able to find me there as well. And I'll, I'll link to some of those articles in the show notes. Okay. So yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time today. It's been an awesome experience. You're you're the third person that I've interviewed for the show. So uh -huh. you're in the the original three, which is pretty awesome. So I plan on doing like one of these a week. So okay. Okay. Hopefully terrific. Hopefully sometime in the future, be willing to maybe come back. Yeah. On. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it, Doctor. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank Perfect. you for having me. As always, the show notes have more information on today's episode. Be sure to connect with me on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at John Molnix. I'm always up to chat. I'm also including the links for the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in the show notes, so be sure to follow them online as well for updates on what the museum is up to. 
Let me know what you think of the show by leaving a review in iTunes. It takes just a minute to do that, and it makes a huge difference because it helps even more people find the show. I'd also appreciate if you could share the space shot with your friends and family, and anyone else that enjoys podcasts. Tomorrow, I catch up on some reading and a Falcon 9 launch. I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.